I want you to meet somebody that I have been spending a lot of time with virtually because we get to appear on uh, Newsmax together and talk about lots of issues involving law enforcement and just American society. Dr. Coleman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Betsy. It's wonderful to be here. So you have, um, wow, your practice and, and your education is just extraordinary. And you do so much for the law enforcement and the first responder uh, profession. Uh, and I've just got to say locally here in Arizona and of course, nationally, how did you get involved in the law enforcement profession as someone who cares for us? So it really started at a very young age. My grandfather is a retired FBI agent. He has, has since deceased, um, but he retired with the FBI. Um, and then after the FBI, he went to work for the state of Tennessee as an investigator. And I always had just this deep respect for the work that he did. And of course, like every other kid growing up, I used to watch all the law and order and CSI. And I was so interested in the profession. And obviously it's an, an incredible glamorization of, of what law enforcement does, but that's what picked my interest. And I remember in college, um, I did a double major of psychology and criminal justice. And there was, there was a while where I thought, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a cop. And then I thought, I'm way too feminine. I'm going to have to wear a uniform. I'm going to have to put my hair up. This is not going to work. I'm way too nice. No one's going to feel threatened or intimidated by me. So I should probably think of something else, but I wanted to make sure that I, you know, stayed within the justice system in some way. And so after college, um, for a hot minute, I thought I was going to be an attorney and thank God I didn't do that. But I went and got my master's in forensic psychology. And it was really, that was the eye-opener moment where I finally got to learn a little bit more about mental health and its role in the criminal justice system. And I had some internships where I would work in jails and prisons. And, and it was interesting, but I found that I interacted a lot better with the correctional officers and the detention deputies much better than the inmates. And I also felt like I didn't learn enough. Like I just, there was just so much more. So that led me to my doctorate and the, a lot more studying and a lot more internships. And um, I found myself at the very end of my doctorate, we have to do an internship and it's essentially psychology's version of a, of a medical residency. And I matched with a police psychologist in Colorado, um, John, Dr. John Nicoletti, who's kind of an o, the o, one of the OG police psychologists in the field. And he remains a mentor to this day. He was one of the, the first police psychologists back in the 70s for the Denver Police Department. And he taught me a lot of what I know. And when I moved to Arizona, I thought, okay, I'm bringing this with me. I'm going to bring all of my knowledge and my skills and everything to Arizona. And that's how this all came to be. So that's extraordinary. And I, I know when people talk about police psychologists, very often they think that what you're doing is trying to figure out who the bad guy is and what kind of crimes they're committing and, and things like that. Um, but you're dealing uh, very often one-on-one -on -one with police officers. What, what are you seeing as far as police retirements and post-traumatic stress? The majority of my clients who are police officers um, are seeing me because they've experienced some trauma. And oftentimes I find myself um, picking up the pieces of prior bad therapists that, that either didn't work well with cops or 
just didn't get the sense of humor or really were not ready for the intensity of the trauma that law enforcement experiences because it's not just your run-of-the-mill everyday trauma. It's not one incident. It's like child death after witnessing a suicide, after having your life threatened and having to shoot somebody, followed by a really bad car accident, followed by you know coming home and having your wife nagging you. Like it, It's just so much for officers. And a lot of therapists just didn't get it. So I'm seeing a lot of trauma. Um, I'm seeing a huge uptick in PTSD. Part of that, I think, is because there's just so much more awareness now. And even though there's still a stigma, I think that stigma is slowly starting to strip away. So part of the uptick is not necessarily because there's more officers with PTSD or PTS. It's because they are more aware of it and they're more open to treatment. And you know, you mentioned that we're in Arizona and Arizona allows officers to medically retire due to PTSD. And once that legislation was passed, um, there was also an uptick because officers can now, you know, essentially get benefits, their, their retirement benefits earlier than they would have with a typical retirement because of PTSD. And I think this is the way that all states should be going. There are a number of states that have enacted this legislation because, I mean, I think they kind of deserve it, right? They, they put so much of their life and their energy and their heart into work, um, not knowing what they're going to see day in and day out. And if they're affected this way, I think they deserve the medical retirement. So we're seeing a lot of that. Are you seeing this vilification of law enforcement add to that trauma and that post-traumatic stress for some police officers? Yes. And I can tell you too, the, the, that first summer after all of the BLM protests, after George Floyd was killed, probably 90% of my officers that I was seeing were, were thinking about leaving the job. They were either considering that medical retirement. If they were eligible for the drop, they were going to be taking it. And those who were, you know, 10, 15 years from retirement were thinking, you know, maybe I'm just going to give up now and find a different career because, you know, my family is so scared for me because not only were officers having to deal with the vitriol that they were experiencing on the job, but what came along with that? I mean, there were officers that would say, you know, I don't tell people what I do anymore because I don't know how they're going to feel about what I do. And, and I don't know what I'm walking into. Um, you know, in Arizona, we have um, the license plate, the 100 club license plate that has the thin blue line and the thin blue and the thin red line um, on the license plate. And it looks really sharp, but it's, I think it's one of the coolest things. Um, but a lot of officers were saying, I feel like this is a target on my back. If I'm driving around with this, is my car going to, you know, get keyed. And there were kids, you know, moms would talk to me and they would say, you know, my kid would go to school and on their lunchbox, they would have a thin blue line sticker. And then kids would ask, you know, my child, I heard your dad murders people. And then these kids are getting thrown in. And so now you've got families in the ears of officers saying, please, please leave. We want you to come home safe. We're worried about you all the time. They're texting nonstop, trying to get updates. And so when you've got not only the officer experiencing things, but the family adding on to that, plus all the vitriol, all of the negative media attention, you name it, it just exacerbates any problem that's there. So we have something here in Arizona that I, I think all states really should adopt because here, here's the thing. We tell cops all the time and firefighters, other first responders, Oh, seek help. You know, we'll, we'll help you get help, all that. And yet I can't tell you how many police officers I've talked to who said they went to their agency for help and all of a sudden they got put on a desk. They uh, 
took, they took their gun away or insurance wouldn't cover the counseling. And it was all very frustrating. We have something called the Craig Tiger Act in Arizona. Can you talk for just a minute on that? The Craig Tiger Act is really cool. So essentially a number of years ago, um, House Bill 2502 was passed um, and, and signed into law by Governor Ducey. And what happened, we call it the Craig Tiger Act because Craig Tiger was an officer who killed himself um, as a result of the trauma that he experienced doing the job. And um, he essentially did not get the help that he needed. And so basically the Craig Tiger Act says that um, sworn law enforcement and fire departments are required to pay for counseling for their employees, for their sworn employees, uh, a minimum of 12 sessions up to 36, depending on the discretion of the therapist, if that employee has experienced any type of qualifying incident. So in our, in our line of work, that's basically most critical incidents. So if, if it's an officer involved shooting, if they, um, you know, if it's a drowning child, if they, uh, if they or a coworker require rescue in the line of duty, there's all of these qualifying incidents and the department has to pay that in full. The employee gets to pick their, their own provider. They don't have to go to whoever that department contracts with. And it still remains confidential. The department just has to collect a couple of stats like attendance and the date of the critical incident and what category it falls into for reporting purposes. And it's great because then the employee doesn't have to, there's no copay. They, are, they don't have to you know, use their insurance benefits or worry about if their provider is in network or out of network. And while lots of departments have EAPs, a lot of times officers will say, well, it stands for expose and punish. You know, I don't really trust the EAP. They're paid by the city. Are they going to you know, say what I told them during counseling? And EAPs are great for some things like general everyday stressors that require a handful of sessions to, to deal with but they're not great for trauma, which requires a lot longer term treatment and just the specialization that officers in particular need when they're finding a therapist. Outstanding. I, I gotta tell you, I gotta switch gears a little bit here. Uh, you are so incredibly knowledgeable. How did you, how did you start appearing in the national media? <laughs> so it's kind of a funny story. So I, I'm on LinkedIn one day and I, and I got a message um, from a, the guy that you and I were on with him last week, Charles Marino, who is my friend Chuck now. And he sent me a message and it was right after George Floyd. And it was right after we started seeing all of this vilification. And he said, I'm just curious if you have any opinion on how this is affecting officers. And I, th and I said, well, of course I do. Why do you want to know? And I had to be kind of mean because probably 50% of the time I get messages on LinkedIn, it's somebody trying to, you know, hit on me or ask me for a oh, date. Yeah. So I'm always a little bit, I always wonder in the back of my head what they're wanting. So he said, well, I'm, I'm writing an op-ed um, and I'm hoping to submit it to Fox News. So him and I wrote this op-ed and we submitted it and Fox News ran with it. And uh, the next day I got a call from uh, one of the producers for the Chris Salcedo show on Newsmax asking if I would come on and talk. And, and then they asked if I you know, wanted to write a blog for Newsmax. Um, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. That's, that is just fantastic. <laughs> I, I love that because the information you're putting out there is um, so important for this profession. Because again, for the last, you know, almost two years now, um, law enforcement has been vilified and lied about. And, and just, uh, it's just been extraordinary. 
And that does truly affect our mental health. And you're working hard to do something about that. And, and, and we really, really appreciate that. Now, when somebody wants to become a police officer, and of course, we're in the middle of a recruiting uh, and retention crisis here in, in, a, in the United States. When somebody wants to become a police officer, one of the things they've got to do is pass a pre-employment psychological exam, right? And that's something that you do. And and I've heard a lot of people, especially in the last couple of years say, well, um, police departments are looking for people who are willing to kill somebody and do, don't care about society and they'll they'll marginalize human beings and, and this and that. Can you tell people the truth about police pre-employment psychological exams? I promise it's not as bad as people think it's going to be. I, every time a candidate comes to see me, especially if it's their first psych ever, they're so nervous because they think I'm going to just, it's going to be intrusive and I'm going to ask all these crazy questions about their mom and, you know, <laughs> that I'm just trying to dig up dirt on them. And it's, and it's not the case. I mean, essentially a pre-employment is we want to just make sure that the, the officers that departments are hiring are mentally fit to do the job. Um, we want to make sure that if there's any history of mental health problems, that they're at least stable now. Um, so having a history of anxiety or depression really doesn't make a difference if you're hired or not. As long as you can handle yourself and, you know, can manage the symptoms, then you're then you're probably good. Um, but a lot of a lot of the tests that we use and the questions that we ask, we're looking for people who do not necessarily want to kill because we don't want people with impulse control or anger management issues. The two of those together are a very bad combination. We want people that are going to be quick to think on their feet, that have you know a good decision making tree in their head that they can work through quickly, um, that can, you know, in, in a shoot or don't shoot scenario can run through and whether or not that there's a, that's a threat or not. Um, and there's, they have to be willing to. Now, if an officer, you know, if a candidate says to me, um, I don't think I could ever kill anyone. Well, that's, you, that, that's part of the job description if you have to do it. So right. that's not gonna be good, but I can tell you a story, a candidate that I saw years ago, I, I asked, I said, why do you wanna be a police officer? Why do you want to work for this department? And he said, well, I love to carry a gun. I like to drive fast. And he started going off and off. And they said, oh yeah, and camaraderie. Camaraderie is really good too. And I'm like, you should have just led with the camaraderie. You know, those are going to be red flags for any psych if you're just excited about the adrenaline rush. So I can assure the public and anyone listening, um, if you're wanting to be a cop, that the psych is not as bad as you think it's going to be. Um, there's a lot of research behind the work that we do as far as weeding people out. And um, we're not looking for people that are going to be trained killers. <laughs> Perfect. Now, you also work with police departments to um, do threat assessments, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a, a potential school shooting or, or whatever. Um, and you also do training too, and training us how to do that. Talk a little bit about um, being involved in threat assessments and, and what that means um, to the general public. So the threat assessment is essentially taking information. So in this case, it's a threat. So somebody threatens to shoot up their school. There's an employee that's making comments on social media that they're unhappy with a supervisor and that their supervisor has got it coming. So we, we're taking this information and trying to provide mitigation strategies to our clients. So it, may, it might be law enforcement that we're working alongside with. It might be the district attorney's office. It may be that employer or that school system as well. 
And so we wanna give them tools to, to accurately, first of all, assess the threat and determine how likely it is to occur. We don't, we don't, we can't read the future. We don't have crystal balls, of course. Um, so estimates are always conservative, but we're trying to look for different behaviors. Like, are they dehumanizing their subjects? Um, are they desensitized to violence? Have they recently acquired weapons? Are they obsessed with what they want to do? Do they keep posting online over and over again? Do they continue to make harassing phone calls or emails um, to this person that they have this injustice against? And then try to give some recommendations for how they can handle that. So that may be for police officers, when they confront this person or they go and do a knock and talk, um, how do they communicate with them? What kind of language would they wanna use? You know, when we are sending officers to this, we probably want them to be trained in crisis intervention or CIT so that they have some of those de-escalation skills and the ability to listen. You know, it may be for the school, we may say, okay, this kid, um, they don't have any intent to do anything, but making it a threat is bad enough. And so there needs to be some repercussions. So consider backpack checks and escorts, stuff like that. So it's a really interesting kind of subset of police psychology and just another way for me to kind of work my brain, but to help out officers. Now, uh, every police department should have a police psychologist on their payroll like you. In fact, we should probably have, for every 40 officers we have, we should probably have at least five psychologists, but nobody wants to pay for that, right? So we do have police social workers who you know, do have advanced degrees, and this seems like a new concept to some people these days. Um, but I have my entire 29 years in law enforcement, I worked with um, police social workers who were just invaluable. And they would um, ride along with us, go to various situations, whether it was a hostage negotiation or a suicide attempt or, or whatever. They would also see uh, clients that, that uh, you know, in our jurisdiction. Um, and they're uh, expensive as well, but how important is it for police departments to have police social workers on their payroll? I think it's huge. And I agree. I think that every department should have a police psychologist, but you're right, we're expensive. And you know, maybe I'm biased, but I do think there's a, there's a good return on investment with that. But as you mentioned, um, police social workers have been around for a long time and provide an invaluable resource. And there's a lot of departments that will contract with local community mental health centers and do what you, what you said, that, that essentially they'll have social workers that can ride along with officers and can essentially be the point person on calls that are involving somebody who's mentally ill. So an officer gets called out to a disturbance because it's, it's a homeless person, you know, just talking to themselves on a corner. And that's what the reporting party said you know, in their, in their call into 911. Um, and, and that mental health professional or that social worker has a lot more tools in their tool belt to provide resources or direct them in the right way or ask the right questions than maybe the officer does, but the officer is there to maintain safety. Um, and I think that in that role, um, what they call them co-responder programs now, I mean, they're, they're huge and there's so much value in those because officers should be putting their time into enforcing the law and making arrests. And um, we can work a lot smarter rather than harder if we can pair social workers to do the job. You know, we've seen a lot of the, of the media lately and there's been a number of stories in which, you know, social workers alone have gone to home visits. And I think there was one recently in Illinois where a social worker went on a home visit and um, was killed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of cry out that, you know, social workers should be responding alone to 
mental health calls or even domestic violence calls, which is crazy. Um, we already have a system in place, as you mentioned, that I think is a lot more effective in dealing with this. And I would love to see more departments adopt that process rather than putting social workers in really dangerous situations. Now, let me ask you this. I And we were talking about this before we started the show. Cops don't always do a real good job of taking care of ourselves. Um, if you could just have a little face-to-face -face time with every single cop in America, what would you tell them to do to take better care of their own mental health? I'd say quit lying to yourself. <laughs> That's the truth because there is no way that this job does not affect you unless you're a psychopath. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure we try to weed out most of the psychopaths. So it's okay to be honest with yourself that, you know, that that call that you went on earlier was rough, that it kind of left you with a little bit of a pit in your stomach, or, you know, when you were interviewing that suspect who, you know, did something to their children that you thought of your own children for a moment and that it made you kind of sad. And when you went home later that day, you hugged your daughter a little bit harder because of what you saw that day. Like those things are very, very normal. And it's okay to admit that it affects you a little bit. In fact, I think it makes you human. You know, we see all of this stuff now about, you know, we want to humanize the badge and it's okay to stand up for yourself. And it's okay to admit that something's wrong because, you know, officers are human. Absolutely. Uh, you make so much sense. Dr. Coleman, where can people uh, find you on social media, on the internet, and, uh, and see more of what you're doing for our community? So on Twitter, it's dr underscore Coleman. And my website is www.drcoleman.com. Doctor, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And if you want more information about us, visit our website at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.